3: Happy
1: Memorial Day weekend, Conspiranormal listeners. We are back again for another installment and good, clean family fun with your host. Adam Zane. And your co-host, yours truly, and don't let's not forget our very important Rob over here.
2: Absolutely. Who has... The most important, yeah, by the way.
1: Yeah, that has our uh, audio now sounding crystal clear.
2: That's right. And it's sounded really good. Always great to have Rob on board. Great to have both of you guys since the last time I I was in here by myself. How about a pat on the back for ourselves? (laughs) (gasps) Rob had to work and Luke was like, oh dude, I don't know, man. I I gotta gotta go buy some (laughs) stuff to sell. There's a pool party, man. There's a pool party, bro. (laughs) What do you want from me? (laughs) well look like, you know you're the entertainment man you're the you're the, you're I, the I try you're, you're the uh i'm the straight man Some, to your
1: uh <laughs> to your goofiness sometimes uh my own voice gets on my nerves like badly <laughs> so well, i don't think that so if it get, to just about everybody yeah i guess so if it gets on my nerves it's bound to get on someone else's
2: well i had a very interesting <laughs> interview with uh Gonch Mora, and Basil from Canary Cry Radio, got a lot of downloads on that show, man, we had like, when well, we got over like 600 downloads, which um, for some people is nothing, but for us is like, is like monumental, so,
0: yeah, really great to have those like, guys on, like class H celebrities by yeah. now, <laughs> yeah, we're getting there, right,
2: <laughs> grade like Y or something like that, not <laughs> invited to the big up. parties yet, but, <laughs> yeah, <getting> not, <laughs> not been invited to anything, any, anything yet, so. Uh, tonight we have Laird Scranton coming on, we're going to talk about his book Point of Origin, Gobekli Tepe and the Spiritual Matrix for the World's Cosmologies, which is uh, just another word for the, how the universe began, the concept of how the universe began, but I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something that's kind of old news now, but for us we're just now getting to talk about it, and that's the Roswell Slides you familiar with, like, the Roswell slides and what is, that was? Is it
1: like a big, fun water slide in Roswell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the middle of the desert.
2: <laughs> well, supposedly, the Roswell slides are these slides that purport to have been pictures of a dead alien from Roswell, New Mexico. Okay. Okay. And there's been, there yep. was a huge, on May 5th, there was a huge gathering in Mexico City. And these guys paid. Uh, they had like a pay-per-view event, and they charged admission to go to this venue in Mexico City, where they're going to do this big reveal on these slides that purportedly showed this dead alien. So they made some. They made some money off of it. Nobody knows quite how much, but uh, they charge for people either there at the venue or you know, sitting at home as pay-per-view to view this supposed slides and what it shows is this picture of a dead body with like this little placard in the front and it, it it they had released like a low res image of the slide apparently this was from some collection that they said that the guy that uh owned these slides was a big friend of president eisenhower And supposedly somehow that made him uh, important enough to have a slide of a dead alien somehow, right? So they they got this slide. They released this low-res image that they were reporting to be an alien. Well, once they released it, they released a high-res image. Um, Nick Redfern, who has been on this show, has um, and a few other people have taken these guys to task and said that this placard that is on the... right next to the alien, it looks... supposed alien, it looks like from a museum, okay? And supposedly someone has run through this, like... has run the uh, placard, the image on the placard, that supposedly was illegible till this time, that uh, they ran it through some simple computer software... And they could make out the words that were on it, and it said, "The body of a two-year-old child mummy donated by such and such from San Francisco." <laughs> you okay. could ju-
1: you could have just saved all that and just said it was some, <laughs> some retarded kid with Pulgeria. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That was crude. That was crude. You should be ashamed of yourself. My my bad. Pulgeria does not equate retarded. Sorry,
2: <laughs> progeria. Progeria. Yeah, it just means that you. Re- <laughs> it just, it
3: just, <laughs> who's the <a> retard
2: now? <laughs> it just it just makes you think, right? Uh, <laughs> progeria. Anyway, this, Adam Goralightly wrote a entry on his blog today that about the Roswell slides, and talks about. Where they came from, okay? so the slides in question have belonged to the same names previously passed along to Nick Redfern, namely Bernard and Hilda Ray. The gist of this story is presented in the trailer to Kodachrome, a film documentary in the works, that tells the startling st- story about these curious slides and how Bernard Ray, a highly respected geologist and avid photographer, and his charming wife Hilda, were globetrotting insiders and close personal friends with Ike Eisenhower as documented supposedly by the many slides in the Ray's collection, such as Ike waving from the back of a train, as well as such revealing photos um, as the 1948 U.S. Open Golf Tournament. Hold on, hold on one sec. Isn't that the same guy that
1: supposedly found the crystal skull down when he was exploring some no, Aztec ruin? No, Uh-oh. I don't I okay. think it has
2: anything to do with that. Okay. Uh, if it was, that would be, like, extremely bizarre, <laughs> right? Okay. Now, talking about... Trying to find this here. It, how the slides were presented by this thing called the Be Witness Event. The first stage of this Roswell slide rollout was the Be Witness Event, featuring a star studded ufological cast of characters orchestrated by Ringmaster Jamie Masson, that included Roswellists Schmidt and Carey, Kodachrome producer Adam Dew, as well as the ever popular ufologist Richard Dolan. Okay, so that's the event that they were at and that they revealed these slides. All right. One persistent question surrounding the low-res slide, which had been available for several months leading up to the Be Witness event, concerned a placard position in front of one of the dead alien's legs. According to the Dream Team and Kodachrome producers, as well as Be Witness promoter Jamie Masson, expert photographic analysis determined that the writing on the placard was indecipherable. In the immediate aftermath of Be Witness, which is the event in Mexico City, a high-res image of the Roswell slide was leaked to a group of researchers identified as the Roswell slide group. Over the last several months, the RSGers had been examining the Roswell slides from behind the scenes, and once they finally had the high-res version at their disposal, members of the group were able to, within the short span of 72 hours, de the supposedly indecipherable placard using a free software program, which revealed that the writing on it said, Mummified body of two-year-old boy. At the time of burial, the body was clothed in a blank, blank cough cotton, which the, the words there, blank, because it couldn't make them out, shirt. Burial wrappings consisted of these small cotton blankets, loaned by the Mr. Blank San Francisco, California. The idea that the so-called alien was really a mummy was something that many who had viewed the low-res slide suspected all along. However, it was such a lousy image, it was impossible to conduct a thorough analysis. This in addition to the resounding statements provided by the Dream Team and Kodachrome producers insisting they had hard evidence to support their claim that the photo was indeed that of an alien, of a dead alien. So they ran it through some kind of simple free program that you can get on the internet. <laughs> and discovered and then they showed that they discovered that what was really on the slide. Okay. There wasn't the it wasn't long after the release of the placard D Blur that Dream Team members started jumping ship. The first out of the shoots was Anthony Regalia who agreed with the conclusions of the RSD that alien inside slide was a mummy that at one time or another had been on display at a museum in Ace Verde, Colorado, where it was originally photographed by Bernard Ray. So this guy, Bernard Ray, Went to a museum in New Mexico sometime in, I don't know, the 1940s, 50s, maybe even as late as the 60s. Took a picture. They find this slide in his collection, and all of a sudden, someone out there either determined that they thought, actually thought it was a dead alien, or they thought they're going to make a lot of money off of gullible ufologists. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Afterwards, a short time after the placardy blur, Kodacone producer Adam Dew fired the first salvo response at the RSG, claiming that the placard duper was actually a fake. In other words, Dew claimed that the RSG had doctored the photo and made up the text about the alien or whatever it is being a mummy. Around this same time, Dew updated his website by adding the high-res image of the placard, which of course was indecipherable. Ironically, this was a stroke of good fortune for the RSG. and In a short order, they were able to download and de-blur this high-res version of the placard straight from the horse's mouth. Once again demonstrating the same thing they'd accomplished with the leaked image of the slide that the placard indicated it was a mummy boy. Afterwards, the RSG produced a couple of YouTube vids showing the step-by-step process using their deblur process, so anyone could try it for themselves. Which in turn led to a growing number of UFO researchers doing their own deblur and achieving the same results as had the RSG. So they made everything available and said, "You guys can do it yourselves. Use this free software and deblur it. It's nice. easy." Yet yeah, there's still people out there, apparently, apparently in denial.
3: Well, there always will be. There's just people that want so bad to believe. They see, yeah, right. see what they want. Exactly. Who is the
1: original uh,
2: perpetuator of the image? Well, there's two people here that it mentions. Uh, one is this Adam Dew guy that's making this movie about the Roswell slides. Oh. The other one is this Jamie Masson guy who is a pretty famous uh, ufologist in, in Mexico, which is where they did the big reveal ...on May 5th, and they revealed supposedly the existence of this mummified body. Now, it it just gets even stranger on the denial part. While it seems the Dream Team is pretty much thrown in the towel, be-witnessing for Sario Jamie Masson is sticking to his guns and is in fact going on the offensive now insisting that the mummy in the slide really is an alien after all, and that the message on the placard placard was some kind of type of disinfo psyop per- perpetrated by those diabolical RSGers, a theory presented by Linda Bolton Howe in tandem with our man Masson in a recent episode of Whitley Streeters Dreamland that had my brain all but oozing out my ears. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic go-rightly there. Some would say... Some would see... Such saber-rattling on Masson's part is mere deflection, but I view it as more a way to keep his strange UFO attainment train careening madly along the tracks. Surreally so enough, the Jamester's so strategy seems like a sound one in this regard, that if you inject enough nonsense into the argument, that it will all eventually fizzle out, or conversely, Masson can use all of this noise to promote future world-chattering events to further fleece the rubes. <laughs> All of these antics on the part of Mr. Basson, and supported by Howard Streber to some extent, seem like a desperate attempt to polish a proverbial turd that got dropped in the B-Witness punch bowl. <laughs> Whatever the case, it's hard—it's kind of hard to keep up with Basson because he's all over the map with some of his comments, such as a recent Twitter tweet where he is offering the whopping sum of $5,000 reward to the person who presents a new image of the B-Witness and $10,000 to whoever leads him to the body. A couple of days prior to the Be Witness event, Nick Redfern posited that the roswell slide alien may in fact have been a mummy on display in years past at the Million Dollar Museum in White City, New Mexico. Which is apparently long closed. Okay. And Nick Redfern has also an article on his website about it as well. And this is something from his article about it. It says, decades ago, Bernard and Hilda Ray visited the Carlsbad Caverns, specifically because of Bernard's work as a geologist a person who spends significant time in caves and caverns. Before they headed home, the pair stopped off at the very, very nearby Million Dollar Museum in White City, where they photographed a few odd-looking items on display, including one of those child mummies, and which showed one of the preserved animal heads directly behind it. And lo and behold, the whole thing, in a weird and strange fashion, has become part and parcel of the roswell crash UFO affair, plus the distance from Midland, Texas, where Bernard and Hilda Ray lived, to the Million Dollar Museum in White City, New Mexico, is only 163 miles. Oh, right. My recommendation is deep search for any and all old photographs of the interior of the Million Dollar Museum in the <laughs> early years. The town of White City was founded in the 1920s by the name of Charles White. He lectured in the museum nearly every Friday night until his death in 1962. Someone somewhere may have just a few photos taken during those lectures. Just maybe there's a lot at the the end of the total finally on the matter of the Roswell Slides. So, once again, like Rob and I discussed with Eric Altman with the whole Bigfoot stuff, and the guy that faked the Bigfoot body back in 2008, you remember that, Luke, when that happened?
1: Mm, yeah, he was on TV, right? Yeah. Yeah. Big hairy guy. Yeah. He looked like a Sasquatch or something. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we killed Bigfoot out in the woods, man. Up <laughs> right there in North Georgia. Oh, man, it was just my friend wearing a ghillie suit. It, <laughs> and so, once again, they, someone has pulled the wool, tried to pull the wool over the eyes of the public, and made a whole big announcement. And there was a lot of hype over this Roswell slides thing. I mean, it went on for I think for like two years. That was the first I've heard of it. Yeah, I mean it's just, it's just it, it's it's just crazy the amount of amount of hype that it that it had yeah. in like the ufological circles and people really people people really want to believe this. They really want to believe you know, that I know something happened. I know it's kind of unrelated, but do you remember
1: uh, what what was that article that we were reading like way back in 2011 or something like that at Biggie Frame uh, about? the um chick that was supposed to or or like jesus was supposed to appear like at a certain place somewhere in the uk and he was supposed to like tell who the antichrist was and stuff like that and it was uh, people were like going all going to collect there you know what i'm talking about that's all i can remember about
2: it are you talking about? Because in 2011 there was a Herald Camping thing where the guy said that the world was going to end on May something 2011. Well, uh, here we are, exactly four years later. It hasn't happened. I, I don't know. I'm They're, not. I'm not going to keep on. You might be thinking of the lady that said that the mile long spacecraft was going to appear over Alabama and take everybody away. No, it's, it's still not it. Like some, <laughs> some. <laughs>
4: well, oh, oh, that's alive. what
1: it was. That's what it was. Like a bunch of people. Reported that they saw some kind of silhouette, like appear in a field or something like that. Right. You know what I'm talking about now. Anyway, Uh, I don't remember, man. (laughs) Try try to look it up. See if you can find it. We'll
2: talk about it at the end of the show. But uh, Rob, what's your uh, what do you think about that? What I just went through there. It's
3: well, like you said, it's like the anytime somebody does a hoax like that, it does nothing but discredit the whole whole field. I mean, I'm on the fence about all of it to begin with, but yeah. you see something like that, and it's just like, what's the point with the internet and with all the tools that are out there with all the ways to, to, to fake it? and it's Right. It's so hard to sift
2: through all that. Well, you know, two things that it shows to me. It shows that some of these ufologists that are out there, that that field is, I think Mike Heiser said this in the show we did with him, that... It's a very hard field to be in. It's very competitive. It's very cruel, and and it also some of these people are willing to just grasp onto what's basically straws and try to prove their their very their already z- worldview that they have. Zilotic, yep. about it. And also, too, for me as someone that looks at the whole UFO phenomenon, and alien abduction, and all that as being a spiritual or dare I say, transdimensional phenomenon it's just one more thing where nobody can really prove to me that there's actually any dead aliens or there's anything physical about it fat fatima yeah the the miracles of fatima yeah yeah that was uh yeah that was 1917 that was uh yeah these kids that (laughs) 2011 (laughs) these kids that we might have been talking about it uh I think you know La Marzulli had spoken about it. I think that's all we were talking about it. Oh, but okay. there, there, there were these kid, these, these kids that uh, in Portugal in 1917 that they saw the visions of the Virgin Mary, and supposedly there were these prophecies that they gave that uh, the Virgin Mary gave to these kids. But the, there was the also Marian like a Marian apparition, right? Yeah, Marian apparition, which is not the only time that that's that's ever happened. Okay, but. Uh, supposedly, there were these prophecies given to these kids. There's stuff about, you know, since it happened during World War One, and there was uh, stuff about stuff about Russia involved there in in these prophecies and stuff about the end of the world. And one of the interesting things about it is is that there were people that went. They call it like the Miracle of the Sun or something like that. They went out to this place where the, these kids were talking to the Virgin Mary, supposedly. And they saw a disc in the sky, similar to, like, a UFO sighting. Okay. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's all coming back to me now,
3: yeah.
2: It's all coming back to me now. (laughs) (laughs) I I got (laughs) a little little serenade there from
3: Luke.
1: (laughs) I have to to dig through, like, the archives of sludge in my brain. (laughs) There's no telling what I've been smoking lately, dude.
2: Alright, well, let's go ahead and take a break because we're going to call the guests here in about five minutes. So, uh, we'll be right back on Conspira Normal. Woo hoo Alright, we're back on Conspira Normal. And, uh, you know who this is, Mr. Adam Sane. And, mm-hmm. uh, right next to me here, Mr. Lukey. Mm-hmm. And Rob again. And, uh, on the line, uh, we have, uh, Mr. Laird Scranton. And Laird is, uh, I would say he's also kind of a fe- fellow traveler with the whole intrepid paradigm community, uh, along with, uh, Mr. Scotty Roberts, John Ward, and all those guys. And, uh, wanted to bring a layered on because we're going to talk about so a couple interesting things tonight. We're going to talk about, like, the science of the Dogon and, uh, Gobekli Tepe and, uh, trying to figure out how everything kind of came about. and uh, Laird, I, I want to kind of get your background first on uh, how you got started studying on on the whole idea of cosmology and and also what you know cosmology is.
5: All right. Well, um, I uh, my my professional background is as a software designer for businesses. I was an independent uh, programmer on IBM uh, mid range computers for a number of years for about two hundred companies um, in the nineteen nineties. I sort of stumbled across a, a little-known African tribe called the Dogon, a modern-day tribe, a primitive tribe. And they seemed to know some things about um, astronomy that they shouldn't know without access to telescopes. They knew things specifically about uh, the stars of Sirius. You know, Sirius is the brightest star of the night sky. Um, and it really consists of two stars, not one, and they knew that. And they also knew the correct orbital period for the two stars. Uh, There are a number of things that they knew they shouldn't know. Um, So that got me interested, and I picked up a book called um, The Serious Mystery by um, Robert Temple and um, read that and then started following his bibliography um, as sources to pursue to learn more about the Dogen, eventually picked up um, anthropological studies that had been done about their religious tradition and uh just sort of got sucked down the rabbit hole <laughs> by uh, all of that
2: uh yeah I actually have that book here um the robert temple's book the serious mystery uh it is a it is a very very interesting book um but what what is the what the kind of first like what's the the definition of cosmology though uh, like what that what exactly I, I, what that I, means
5: i joke that it doesn't mean that I do people's hair and nails <laughs> gotcha <laughs> but um it's really uh it's defined as the as create the creation traditions these are concepts of how how a culture believes creation happens and typically with the ancient cultures what we're talking about is three specific things we're talking about how matter forms how the universe formed and how biological reproduction happens now um, one really interesting feature I, I what i'm pursuing is what looks like um A system of cosmology that was shared by many different cultures. I didn't realize that coming into this, but within this system, those three themes of creation are considered to be equivalent to one or parallel to one another. Um, And so, whoever put the system together was able to define all three systems simultaneously using a single set of symbols. Okay, that's part of what makes this interesting. And these symbols are the you know the the archetypical symbols that you, that you'd find Jung talking about or uh, that turn up again and again in culture after culture the spiraling coils and the the serpents and the clay pots and the the things you you think of when you think of ancient symbols
2: right so I want to talk about you kind of go back into the into the Dogon uh, where, where are they located what country
5: they're in Mali which is okay. in, in the hump of of Northwest Africa. Um, they're located very, uh, very long distance from anything we'd consider to be civilized. They're about eight hours across the dev- desert, located along a big escarpment, um, right on the edge of the desert, where they sort of eke out a living as as farmers and as artists. Um, they're um, a modern-day tribe of about three hundred thousand people, wow. but their traditions go way back. Um, the words that they use to define this creation system are ancient Egyptian words that went out of use around 700 B.C. Hmm. And a lot of their civic practices look like ancient Egypt around 3000 B.C. Uh, the cosmology that they they have, this uh, system of cosmology, is a match for um, a Buddhist cosmology that relates to um, a shrine called a stupa. So there are, are um, cross-connections here that, that make the Dogon a really good sort of entry point into looking at all these things what is their their
2: concept you know the kind of their understanding uh you their mythology and i i use that i use that word a little loosely because i don't and in any quotations because i don't believe necessarily that mythology is all made up i think it has and definitely looking at your work here that there's definitely mythologies these are like allegory or a kind of distant memory of of how things may have actually occurred so it,
5: well, what is first, the, like the relationship to the star Sirius? Well, first of all, there's no no single myth that uh, that represents the Dogon thought. Um, yeah. Okay, now in Dogon culture, myths are sort of they represent sort of fireside stories that are told to the general tribe members, um, and that that sort of set up sort of set a mindset a, a, a frame of mind for those. Uh, tribal members in general, that certain members will decide to pursue and become uh, more knowledgeable about as they as they grow, you know, grow through the tradition. Uh, okay. They as they learn with the priests, uh, the more they more sincerely they pr- pursue the tradition, the more they learn insider secrets. And those insider secrets are open to anybody who really wants to learn them. All they have to do is be be sincere about pursuing them. But the myths play an important role because they sort of set the framework for what the general themes are going to be that guide this system. Right. Uh, And that's where they started out. This is not like Greek myths where we're talking about sort of, um, um, soap opera storylines, you know, (laughs) these are, are things, these are our generalized stories about, um, how the universe was created and, um, Some of the classic myths are like the myth of uh, Prometheus stealing fire from the gods is the theme that plays out in one of these myths. A lot of the classic themes of ancient myths you see um, expressed in these stories, but they were sort of fireside stories.
2: Okay, what the whole serious thing is so interesting to me uh, that this tribe, just kind of like they're in the middle of the, I guess, basically like a desert region. And I think in the 1930s or so, there was a lot of anthropological research done on them, and someone found out that the, they had this concept of the star Sirius as a dual star system, which I don't think was even known at the time that the, this anthropological research was going on. Uh, where do they say that they
5: got that knowledge? <laughs> that's a, that's one of the the sort of the the, the long term um goals was to try to understand where they actually got it from um they um I, how how to say this um From their perspective and the perspective of of a number of the other cultures that I study, um, I guess I should explain that my field of study in terms of the books is called comparative cosmology. And what that means is um, I'm trying to learn more about these myths and symbols by comparing what different cultures who have those myths and symbols um, how they understand them and what they think about them and what they've written down in their texts and so forth. You know, how do they interpret the symbols? And if you can find three or four cultures who interpret it the same way, then you're in a, in good shape to, to, to think that that might be a reasonable interpretation for what the symbol meant. Um, right. okay. Now, when it came to Sirius and the information that surrounds Sirius, the, um, first of all, the scientific community, the modern scientific community did know about Sirius, um, before the Dogen did. Um, the, the the French anthropologists who studied them from the 1930s to the ni- mid-1950s um, didn't really write this stuff down until around 1956. But by around 1918, the astronomic community in, the, in, in modern cultures or more civilized cultures um, understood that there were two stars there, at least two stars there, and okay. understood... Now, the problem is that you've got a very bright star like the sun and a very um, dark dwarf star that is so close to that bright star that you can't see it without a, a very uh, specialized telescope because the glare of the bright star is so so bright that it masks the fact that the second star is even there. So when, when the Dogon were questioned about how they how they know this information, their answer is, um, essentially the same as other cultures who share the same knowledge, and that is that they got it from somebody in ancient times who knew more about these things than they did. Okay. They, they lay it at the feet of, of people who deliberately taught them about this. So now in my field of study, one of the, the real um, problems, one of the pitfalls is uh, the researcher's own pers- personal re- wishfulness – um, yeah. the brain is sort of wired to see patterns even when they don't really exist. And so it's very tricky for the guy who's doing the research to know, now am I pursuing this because I want it to be true, or am I pursuing this because there really is evidence that shows that it's true? And so what, one of the ways I protect against that is I try to, to make my starting point always be a flat statement on the part of the culture. So it's the Dogon who say we learned it from teachers in ancient times, not me. And it's right. the Dogon who say that well, um, their their system of this the system of knowledge that this serious information is part of, um, the Dogon describe as a, um, a creation tradition. But it's also attached to a civilizing plan. This is hard to explain. Um, imagine that coming through um, elementary school, you'd had a set of teachers who who realized that if they could look at math the same way they look at history, the same way they look at um, you know uh, learning a language or whatever it happens to be, if they could find ways of lining these subjects up with each other, they could teach at once and have the same instruction applied to more than one subject. And so that's sort of what the Dogen have with, with these parallel themes of the cosmology and the creation plan. this The civilizing plan that they had was intended to teach them, it was to raise them up from the level of hunter-gatherers to farmers. But each skill that they were taught was presented to them in relation to science. Yeah. And and so the idea was that as, you, as a tribe member stepped out of their hut every morning and went out to plow their field, the method they used to plow their field or to weave their cloth or whatever it happened to be recreated some important process of of creation in the universe or or matter or of biological reproduction and sort of so these daily acts sort of reinforced the instruction they had for all this other scientific stuff
2: so so it was in other words it was allegory uh, yeah it was really
5: the- really Really, mnemonic is what it, what it boils down yeah. to. If you know what mnemonics are, it's uh, um, it's like the ABC song for a little kid. It's much easier to learn the ABCs right. if you can sing it to a song th- than if you have to just learn the letters.
2: Kind of like and Schoolhouse so, Rock or something.
5: Right. And so yeah. this is sort of the same idea that let's find a way to make it easier to remember this stuff. And part of the way to make it easy is to have one set of instruction represent multiple things.
2: What are some of their concepts, um, some of these simple concepts that they attribute to things in, the, in their culture or their farming techniques uh, that, that symbolize a wider um, physical concept?
5: Um, to get at that, it's a little bit tricky. They, they say that this, this um, creation tradition they have describes how their tribal god named Amma created matter. Now, when I started researching this, I didn't know very much about how matter formed. So, you know, I knew enough to recognize an atom or a proton, electron, or neutron, but I didn't know a whole lot beyond that, you know, below that. Yeah. And so, I could see that the Dogen had the definition of an atom right, and they had the definition of protons, electrons, and neutrons right. And I asked myself, what are the chances that this whole descending structure that they described could also be right? And so I started reading Brian Green and Stephen Hawking and people like that to try to get a sense of um, how how do we think matter is formed and how does that compare to what the Dogans say and so this book the Science of the Dogon which was the first book in the series really is it really represents sort of a side by side comparison of what the Dogans say those stages of creation are and what Stephen Hawking and Brian Green and people like that say and it consists of you know descriptions that the Dogon gives side by side with a scientific description and a drawing the Dogon makes side by side with a scientific diagram. And you can see intuitively that they're match. Not only are is each description and drawing a match, but the sequence of stages they're describing are a match. The Dogon are talking about a scientific structure.
4: Hmm.
5: Now being a programmer, I know that there are certain techniques I use when I sit down to write a complicated computer program that I use deliberately. I learn, Over time, I learned to do certain things to make it easier for the guy who follows me five years down the line to try to understand what I was doing. Right. And sometimes sometimes that guy five years down the line is me. <laughs> and <laughs> so by being, by being consistent about how I lay things out and trying to use some intelligence to the way I assign symbols and things like that, I make it easier for myself to get back into the mindset of a program you know, years later. Well, I could see that some of these same techniques had been used in connection with these symbols of the creation tradition. And once I realized that, that tipped me off that I was looking at a system that was a design system, not an accidental system. Wow. And so once I had confidence that it was a design system, then it became a little easier to sort this stuff out because I'm not not chasing what if anymore. I'm looking at something that has all of the earmarks of being designed. Now let's go see... Know how it plays out. Um, in the, the Buddhist system that is a match for the Dogen system, it starts with something called adequate symbols. Now, an adequate symbol is defined as a symbol that um, no matter what happens over time and no matter um, how badly the, the trail of symbolism gets lost to the initiates as time goes on down through generations, the meaning of a symbol can't be lost. And the only only way that can happen is if the symbol represents a shape that you can see in nature. And so the Dogen have a symbol that looks like a four-petal flower that represents electrons, protons, and neutrons. That shape happens to be a match for one of the, the um, traditional scientific images of an electron orbital shape. This is the shape that orbit that electrons take as they they, that they make they sort of describe as they're uh, orbiting an atom.
2: Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that graphic before. Yeah.
5: Now there are a number of other of these um, cosmological symbols that are that are the same thing. They actually represent something in nature. When you come up, when you actually see that from a scientific point of view, you realize what the. The Dogon or the Buddhist symbol must represent, and then you can go into there into sources that describe their symbolism and you realize, hey, they described it just right for what the scientific uh, definition of the shape is
2: What other ancient traditions are there that have these same kind of similar patterns and these same kind of similar ideas
5: lots and lots and lots of them, and they extend, on every continent of the planet they're there, and um, I personally have explored the the books that I've written have been about um, Traditions in Africa, Egypt, India, Tibet, China. Um, and down. Uh, I'm working on a book right now that goes down into Polynesia and uh, New Zealand area. There's another book that's at the publisher that talks about um, cultures in uh, the British Isles in Scotland. Um, and I know um, there are there's, uh, certain aspects of this that I consider to be signatures. For example... The, um, the cubit, which is um, the me- unit of measure that that uh, is defined as the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, that cubit is one of those signatures. If a culture used cubits in ancient times, the chances are very good they had the same symbol. Um, if a culture... Um, if they... In their mythology, if they describe a wheel or a chariot associated with the constellation Orion, I know without even asking that 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 is a reflection of this this system of cosmology. Uh, one of the books in the series, um, I think the the third book in the series, I lay out um, a list of what I consider these signatures to be, and I, I can I can use them as a, a basis. I knew because of these signatures that ancient Chinese. Uh, Cosmological traditions—we're going to line up with what I had already studied. The
2: the Dogon themselves have a very uh, specific—they say that they got it from a very this information from a very specific being, and that's what they call the Nomo or the Namo. What? How do they describe these beings?
5: Well, again, that's that's a a complicated issue. Um, Robert Temple, when he wrote his book he had a disadvantage because the anthropological study that had been done on the dogon had not, had not yet been translated into english really? he had he had some chapters from it that had been translated but he didn't have access to the entire study and a lot of the the older articles the way this tradition works um there are certain aspects of this of this knowledge that um how can i say this they they're misrepresented to early you know initiates in the early years um, that they're studying the the tradition, or let's put it this way they're not represented in their final form to the early initiates. It's not until they get to the really inner knowledge that you finally understand how um, a certain concept plays out and so this the is... anthropologists who were studying them when they wrote the early articles didn't have a complete understanding of how the system worked, and so they they describe certain things in ways that they're not exactly right. And Temple was working with those um, articles. Uh, so their
2: systems very much as like kind of like like any secret society, like like Freemasonry. So the higher you go, the more information is revealed to you.
5: Uh, yes, and really, the only requirement is that okay, if you're a priest and I'm an initiate, and I ask you a question that you consider to be appropriate to my status as an initiate, you are obligated to give me a, a truthful answer. But if I ask you a question that's inappropriate to my status, you're required to ma- to remain silent or to lie if you have to to protect a secret.
2: Mm, and, interesting. And
5: if, if someone comes in from the outside and starts asking questions, clearly they, they don't have an initiated status. The obligation of, of the tribe members is to remain silent or to disavow knowledge.
2: So was there did they actually say that there was a Creatures called the the Namo that gave them this information, or is again, that?
5: Well, the reason that that's complicated is because, um, again, this is, this is difficult to explain. First of all, if you understand that there are three, at least three, parallel creation themes going on here. Right. When you ask what does a particular reference or a particular symbol mean? That's a fair question, but it's only a fair question in relation to one of the themes because, for example, if we're talking about biological reproduction, then the shape of a hemisphere or a dome represents an expanded womb of a woman. But if we're talking about the formation of matter, that same shape represents the expansion of mass as matter is created. So it's a tricky question to say, what does the term pneumo mean? There's different
2: levels of meaning.
5: There are different levels of meaning, and it depends on what perspective you're looking at it from, what the right answer to that question is. Now, from Robert Temple's perspective, he thought that they were talking, that the term pneumo referred specifically to non-humans, to aliens. He was um, posturing this knowledge of Sirius, uh, the stars of Sirius, as evidence of an alien contact and that was his main thrust in his book was here we have some some proof here that in the ancient times we had an alien contact with with aliens from Sirius but when you get down into the system you realize that there are many, many complications to that outlook Uh, ultimately it does come down to what the Dogon and the Buddhists describe as a non-human source but it's not as simple a situation as sci-fi aliens coming to yeah. the earth from from Sirius.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's much more complex than that. Uh, right. We're, we're, I guess that, you know, Temple wrote the book, I believe in the late seventies. And that was the, you know, around the tall time of the, you know, when the ancient aliens thing started, right. With chariots of the gods, right. The Sitchin, all that kind of stuff that was going on. So it, it, as far as um, any kind of ancient aliens like, themed book, it seemed like one of the most, at least scholarly and uh, a, a book that wasn't as, um, I guess, sensationalistic a, right. as most of the books that were out there.
5: Right Are, now, now in fairness to Temple, in the book that I have at the publisher right now, I actually catch up with the trail of the what looks like the teachers of the Dogen, who are described in terms that play out phonetically like Numo. It's actually, the word ends up being nema or nem. Uh, Back in ancient times, um, these, these ancient languages, one of the hallmarks of the language is that the vowel sounds are not written down. It's like ancient Hebrew; they write the letters, but not and the consonants, but not the vowels. Right. And so, when you go to the like Egyptian, ancient Egyptian words, nobody is certain how any of the words were really pronounced because we don't have a firm fix on what the vowel sounds were.
1: Um. So, in in the in your book, do you actually have uh, any revealed Dogon secrets?
5: Yes, actually, I do, uh, Matt. Through the series of books. We re- reveal more and more of this, um, one of the issues that I struggled with personally as I was researching this was, look, we have a system here that these groups worked really, really hard for thousands of years to keep secret right. what what business do I have revealing <laughs> this stuff even yeah. the anthropo- even the anthropological study of the Dogon was put together in a way so um, so that the how can I say this the um, the real upshot of the information is not easy to get at. You have to work, a person has to work at it to be able to really get to the bottom of what certain issues are. Um, so I was trying to justify to myself, how do I, how do I justify the fact that I'm going to write about this stuff? Well, when I realized that the system talks about science and that the Dogen do include some things that modern astrophysicists don't talk about. For example, uh, you don't hear um, Stephen Hawking talking about how is it that a simple act of perception causes matter in its wave-like state to suddenly behave like a particle. The Dogen yep. talk about that; they explain that. Uh, Stephen Hawking doesn't really talk about what is it that preceded the Big Bang, but the Dogen do talk about that. And and when they talk about it, they talk about it in ways. First of all, they're not saying here's what we think happens. They they're saying. Here's what happened. Right, right. And the explanation they give is, a, on the face of it, a reasonable explanation. And so that information looks to me as if it's only about 50 years ahead of where we're at right now scientifically anyway. Wow. And so if the ultimate purpose of the system was, if the target of the system or the target audience was um, a society that was scientifically capable enough to recognize it and to hopefully shortcut some of the science for us, we're running out of time here. If somebody doesn't talk about this soon, there's going to be no benefit from having found it. Right. And uh, so that's my justification for, for talking about it.
2: Are the Dogon as a culture, you know, in modern times, are they are they losing some of this cultural information? Or are they still very much strong with it now?
5: They're still strong with it. I mean, there are societal pressures, you know, encroaching uh, outside Culture that the press is in, but the Dogon society is um, a lot like Egyptian society back around 3000 BC. Um, the structures of Egyptian society, we know for sure, held their form for almost 3000 years. The Dogon society, which is built on very similar structures, looks as if it's held its form for 5000 years. Hmm. Well, it's a, ver- a very self reinforcing kind of structure.
2: What's what's kind of the similarities between the two, and is is it is it a general belief that uh, Dogon came from ancient Egypt at a, at a certain point of time?
5: Uh, no, as a matter of fact, none of the stuff that I'm talking about is a general belief anywhere. This is um, uh, I'm pretty much the only person who thinks a lot of these things. Um, I've had articles published in academic journals. For example, um, there was a Belgian. Uh, anthropologists who claimed that the original French study of the Dogen was um, fabricated by the Dogen priests, that they made it up, that this isn't a real system of cosmology. Now, how do you disprove that? Well, yeah, you can. The way, uh, well actually, it turns out you can. And the way oh, you really? disprove it is that um, the Belgian team, as well as the French team, missed the fact that the Dogen system is a match for a Buddhist system that was documented around 400 B.C., yeah, And because the two systems still match, that means that since that time, neither one of them can have changed. Um, even the, the Dogen have a shrine that looks like a Buddhist stupa. And the Belgian had claimed that this shrine was was um, only existed in the imagination of the French anthropologist. He said, this is not a real structure. But because you can point to a second system that is academically accepted and has long been accepted as being legitimate, it's hard to argue that this was fabricated.
2: Why so much animosity towards uh, what's been written
5: about the Daogon? Is it because uh, it's Temp- of the book? Temple's book? It's because okay. of Temple's book. Temple's book made it um, controversial. Now, Carl Sagan, almost immediately after Temple's book came out, Carl Sagan came in and said, well, this is very easy to understand how this happens. What happened was a modern person who had scientific knowledge came and spent time with the Dogon and explained to them about the stars of Sirius, and they incorporated that into their lore. (laughs) That just seems (laughs) even less possible, though. Well, no. I mean, it it could be possible, and it's very hard to argue that it didn't happen. Right. But the, way, but the way you can argue that it didn't happen is if he had looked a little deeper into how this how this information is expressed. It's all expressed using ancient Egyptian words that went out of use around 700 BC, and yeah. so the problem now becomes: how do you come up with a modern day candidate who would would have brought them that information using ancient words?
2: Even without knowing that, I, I still knew about what Carl Sagan had said. You know, because I've looked at this. Like I said, I've read Temple's book, and and I've looked at some of the other criticisms. And it just it just seems like almost patently absurd that you would think that someone would go into uh, the middle of the desert, in in the Sahara, and. Mm-hmm say oh hey guys um thanks for the water now let me tell you about the star that's out in the sky and it's oh it's actually a dual star system and i thought you might want to know that so it, it just it, it's it's wow.
5: kind of beyond comprehension
1: do the dogen use hallucinogenics
5: um good question. According, according to the the french anthropologists they are very well versed in the pharmacology of the plants that are in their region which implies that they know about hallucinogenics, but they don't lay any of this information on hallucinogenics. That, from their point of view, the instruction that they received was real-world instruction, not um, something that happened while under the influence of a drug. Hmm.
2: Right. So they don't see it as, as being that they were taking a, that they were taking a, the spiritual trip and they were talking to spiritual It, it definitely...
1: Least discredits it for a lot of people across the globe when they hear that little tidbit about taking uh, hallucinogenics it, it tends to
2: discredit yeah in modern society it does. Yeah. yeah
5: right in modern society does now that's not to say that um certain certain hallucinogenic ge- drugs might not um make uh humanity more receptive to this kind of information um when we get down to the bottom of the system what lies at the bottom of it, and this goes way, way, way back into early philosophies in India, but the Dogen agree with this and other cultures also specifically agree with it. The idea is that when our material universe formed, it formed side by side with a non material universe. And the main difference between the two, um I characterize in terms of time frame. Um You know how Einstein says that the closer to the speed of light you go, that if if you were an astronaut traveling very close to the speed of light, um, that your time frame slows down. They've actually measured it with atomic clocks. They can show that there's a a slowing down of time frame for objects that are accelerated very quickly. What this implies is that as you um, are dealing with less and less massive objects, the time frame increases. It speeds up. And so when you get down to the level of of massless waves or virtually massless waves, they've got to be running at a nearly infinite time cycle, infinitely fast time cycle compared to us. And so in these philosophies, the difference between the material universe and the non-material universe is that in the non-material universe, all events essentially happen at once. There's no such thing as time. Mm. Now, that also goes along with the idea that Um, why does it look like waves to us? If you, you know that if you use, um, time lapse photography or if you speed up a, um, a film or a video that you're playing back and play it back very quickly, it reaches a point where things look like waves instead of like individual objects. Um, so one of the things that may be going on down there at the bottom of matter is it looks like waves to us because its time frame is so quick compared to ours. Well,
3: that's, that's where it ties into like time being the fourth dimension and
5: Right, that's right. And um, in the ancient philosophies, the understanding is that, okay, um, on this non-material side, uh, basically these cultures are saying this is the way universes always form. As a matter of fact, there are more universes than ours, and they always form in pairs, and one of them is material and the other one is non-material. But the definition of the non-material side is that it has perfect knowledge but an inability to act. And the reason it has an inability to act is because there's no time frame. There's no opportunity. There's no sense of duration in which to act. Now, to me, that describes locked-in syndrome, if you know what that is. A person who's, who's basically, their brain is still alive, but they've lost the ability to move. <laughs> So in these ancient philosophies, the the understanding is that there are routine eff- efforts made from the non-material side to communicate to the material side, but it can only be done in subtle ways. That it, It's sort of like a game of charades or a game of password. You know, I can give you a clue trying to get you to give me the right statement back. Um, it's understood that... Uh, Images that appear, vivid images that appear in dreams, um, that certain things that look like coincidences in our daily life are actually attempts at communicating, that certain actions of animals in nature are an attempt to communicate, or that certain information derived from divination um, is a way of communicating information across from the, the non-material to the material side. The idea is there's a flow of energy between these two universes that is compared to the natural water cycle, you know, where water evaporates into the sky to make clouds, the clouds rise up over the mountains and rain, and the rain runs down the mountains and rivers back to the ocean. Well, there's that kind of a flow of energy between these two universes, and as part of that flow, this, these attempts at communication happen.
2: Do you think that ancient cultures and even now more primitive-based cultures, for the lack of a better word, uh, that they understand this better than we do in kind of like our modern, industrialized Western society?
5: I think they do, and it's hard to sort out whether that's because of – some people would say that there are cycles like the Yuga cycle where humanity becomes more receptive to this kind of information – um it may simply be a matter of having the time and the the peace and quiet to pay attention to these things um for example i know my wife and i when when we had our first child um he was bottle fed bottle fed and when you feed feed a baby with a bottle every so often you have to they get air in their stomach along with the the milk and you have to burp them to get the air out and then they can continue eating well we noticed that this infant, who was only a few days old, started raising up his arms every time he was ready to burp. Yeah. Now, nobody thinks that infants are deliberately trying to communicate with adults. But we could see that there was a pattern here, and we took it to be a real pattern. And from that point on, we, we never had to guess when he wanted to burp. We He signaled us. He knew, yeah. Right. Well, similar things uh, any anyone who's in sort of my position of researching these, these kinds of questions or writing about them um, has stories of things you can't explain that happen. Sometimes they're very subtle and sometimes they're very overt. It comes down to as overt things as the book I couldn't find in the 1990s that I desperately needed turning up in a random box of junk sent to us by my wife's cousin. Um, just... That's actually happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) Very strange things happen, and you can think they're coincidences or you can ask whether they might not be coincidences. Um, I know that the last two books that I've written have um, sort of fallen out very quickly. One fell out in about three months. The other one fell out in about six weeks because I was paying attention to things that pointed me in the right direction to be able to write one what I needed right
2: write. Yeah, it's a very interesting concept there of that idea of the, of the physical universe and it's twin of a kind of like more spiritual universe. A backup universe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Gobekli Tepe. <laughs> okay. And let's, I, I believe that you look at this in the book, Gobekli Tepe as, as you say, the point of origin. And that possibility that from this site in Turkey, uh, what is now Turkey, that these ideas and uh, all stem from this site. So what is Gobekli Tepe? And like, kind of like the location where it is and like also the age of the site, which I
5: think is extremely important or right. how just old this thing is. Well, as background, the Dogon, the Buddhists, and numerous other cultures that I study, in addition to saying that they received their civilizing information from somebody who knew more than they did in ancient times, they also, there, there are repeated claims that that instruction happened someplace away from where they were living. Um, the Dogen, okay, the Buddhists flatly say it came from a non-human source. The Dogen go a little further and they say not only was it a non-human source, it was a non-material source, but in a kind of a complicated way. Their teachers were concerned about what the long-term effects were going to be on us of being around them, which means there was a, an actual physical component here. If there were side effects from being around them, this was not something that was happening in some shaman's mind. Okay, now the solution to that problem was to sequester Eight Dogen tribes people at a remote site, teach them skills, civilizing skills, and and information about creation traditions and then send them back to teach everybody else in their tribes. This is a sort of a a scenario that plays out in culture after culture all around the world. You hear it, you know, the story of the eight ancestor teachers who came and brought civilizing skills. You hear it in China, you hear it in the Americas, you hear it in Polynesia, you hear hear it in Asia, you hear it everywhere. So um, it's not an unthinkable scenario that it might've actually happened Um, Gobekli Tepe looks like one of the sites where that might have happened, and it may only be one of the sites. Um, Gobekli Hmm. Tepe is uh, uh, an exceedingly ancient site that was uh, uncovered by accident, started to be uncovered by accident back in the 1990s. A farmer plowing his field hit some stone and discovered that it was actually um, a pillar, a stone pillar, and there are beautiful carvings on these pillars. This is the, the earliest megalithic site Using you know multi-ton stones to create circles of stone pillars uh, from around uh, 10,000 BC, roughly 10,500 BC. Wow. It's in it's in southeastern Turkey in the region that qualifies as the Fertile Crescent, which is where traditionally we think things got started. It's located very nearby where many other civilizing skills also first appear. For example, the first cultivated wheat is found there the first signs of metalworking or metallurgy are found there Um, the first evidence of domesticated farm animals is there Um, here we also have the first evidence of stone working as a matter of fact this is such an early site that it precedes the earliest evidence we have for the tools that would have been required to build it we don't have a trail of of development for tools capable of having carved these things
2: it really makes me think, and as, as reading this in the location, uh, you, you know, you, this date of ten thousand five hundred BC, and that's roughly the time at the end of the last ice age. Right. That's right. Uh, and, and also, you know, being where it is, situated in Turkey, you know, I always think about the, the you know, the Noah's Ark story, and right? The the mountains of Ararat. And right. That's it's right. Very close to that same
5: region. It is absolutely now the term Ark is actually a cosmological term that applies to what I believe that the Gobekli Tepe site itself represents. Um, Again, this is hard to explain. There are a series of stages by which the first structure of matter, it's comparable to the Calabi-Yau space in string theory. Um, This structure gets created through a series of stages that the Dogon and some of the other cultures refer to as an Ark. And that's one of the things that these stone circles, I believe, represent. Um, the Now, in, in the conception of the ancient Egyptians, they, they talk about a first time when uh, yes. knowledge was passed to humanity. And the Buddhists talk about the first time knowledge was passed by Buddha to humanity. But the Dogon in the same context, using a lot of the same words, talk about a, an era in which humanity was restored to culture. Right. So it, from the Dogon perspective, the Dogon are making it look as if there was a period of high culture before some calamity, and then around 10,500 BC, humanity there was an attempt made to restore humanity to culture. My guess is, the, the likeliest guess is, that the Ice Age was the calamity that disrupted whatever was before. But uh, unfortunately, it creates sort of a, uh, a a barrier to being able to trace any kind of evidence. It's hard to get past that.
2: True. The further, b- the further you go, the darker
5: things just become. Right. Even going back as far as go back to the Tepe is a trick because we only have written texts from around 3000 B.C., and go back to Tepe dates from ten thousand BC. So how do you how do you span that gap of seven thousand years? And I, you know, part of what I try to do is I try to anchor interpretations with evidence. And when you don't have written text, it becomes a very, a very tricky task to do that. Right,
2: and it's interesting too that that, that the Egyptian uh, this this concept that they had. Of uh, this time the primordial time, they called it
5: zeptepe, right, and actually, that was one of my entry points was language. Um, I have seen in my studies that the farther back in time we go, the more commonality of language we have. and so I began one of the things I began exploring was whether the term um, gobekli tepe, the word tepe in gobekli tepe, and the word tepe in zeptepe from e- egypt. Could those be the same word well, in the modern Turkish language, the word tepe has about two dozen meanings. Um, oh, I was wow. able to demonstrate that a, that a dozen of those meanings also exist in the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary under similar pronunciation, so I could argue based on that that these were essentially the same word that that when the ancient Turks said "tepe," they likely likely understood it the same way the modern, more modernized Egyptians did. Or would
2: the Turks have gotten that from possibly another language, like maybe like the Hittite language that the people that were there in that area before?
5: They might have, but it's again, it's hard to demonstrate yeah. where it came from. Language
2: is a tricky but, thing. There's so much. There's there's so much about it
5: that is just kind of defies reason, really. Right. Now, a lot, of these, a lot of these phonetic values end up having significance in the system of cosmology and the more because this system of, of cosmology preceded written language. It was originally an oral tradition. And so the way a word was pronounced was very important. Um, so by comparing how different cultures remember these concepts being pronounced, you're able to sort of narrow in on what the phonetic values must have meant. And one of the books, or a couple of, the, uh, in one of the books, and and continuing on in other books in the series, I talk about these phonetic values and what what meanings they're likely to have based on Dogon and, and Egyptian language. Um, so, in tracing the words forward, um, part of the key is tracing the phonetics. Um, right. My trick was I suspected that. The symbols, the kinds of symbols we see at Göbekli Tepe, which include uh, standing stones and stone pillars and carved, beautiful carved images of various animals, and um, there are numerous other factors that play into the Göbekli Tepe site. It's a mountaintop sanctuary, and we have the name Göbekli Tepe itself. Um, that my sense was that these are very familiar symbols that tie forward to comparable symbols around 3000 BC in these various cultures but I needed some way of connecting the two and so I ended up using language to, to make that connection um, I I asked myself what was the what did the ancient Egyptians call the region of Turkey where Gobekli Tepe was back in three you know 3000 BC it turns out they called it get pet Kai now the word get pet Kai is an unusual word for Egypt because it's it's an archaic form. It doesn't follow all the same rules that later words do. And when I started exploring that form and the form of some other words, I realized that these were names of mountaintop sanctuaries. And the phonetics pointed ended up pointing me to a culture in India called the Sakti cult. It's a yes. tradition, and that Sakti cult has all of the same symbols in its earliest form. That we see at Göbekli Tepe, they, um, uh, I- including they, they have symbolism that ties to the word Göbekli Tepe itself. Uh, the traditional uh, translation for the word Göbekli Tepe is potbelly hill. Well, in the symbolism of the Sakti cult, one of the key uh, symbolic elements was a clay pot filled with water that represented a womb that was called a potbelly. So we get linkage, you know, in that sort of way. Uh, you know, what the, what these things were called in later times as opposed to what they were, they looked like they were called in earlier times. And that following those names took me to this cult, and that cult provided me with what I needed to be able to tie forward to Africa, to Egypt, to India. Uh, that, that cult is understood to have been a predecessor of the Vedic and the Buddhist and the Hindu traditions. So it, you know, all the Indian traditions play right out from that cult. But, there, you can also tie it into Egypt, ancient Egypt, around 4,000 BC, down around Elephantine at, in the south of Egypt, um, and you can tie it into the Dogon through um, various languages that that play out over that period of time. There's a group called the Tamil, who are the preservers in modern times of this Sakti or Shakti cult, and um, those are very in Sri
2: Lanka, I believe, right?
5: No, what well, they are, they their main in India, their main. Um, region of of uh, celebration is on the east coast of the peninsula of India. It's a region called Arisa. Arisa, okay. And um, so by tracing those things forward, understanding how all these symbols were understood among the Shakti cult, understanding what words they were using and what meanings, uh, one of the favors that whoever put the system together did for me was they made sure that every term of the cosmology carried at least two distinct meanings that were separated from each other logically, so you couldn't guess the second one by knowing the first one. Now, by having that, that provides me with um, a positive way to correlate terms between cultures, even through different languages, that uh, with the Dogon, we have a, a hidden god who name, whose name means to grasp or to hold firm. His name is Amma. When we go to Egypt, we have a hidden god named Amen. whose name also means to grasp or to hold firm or to establish. When we go to Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, the word amen that you find at the end of a Hebrew prayer means it comes from a root that means to establish. So you can tie the words together positively based on these multiple meanings. Using those, I was able to trace things forward. Um, One of the names of these ancient sanctuaries was the the archaic name was pronounced Ganusa Ast. Well, I know the Ganusa is, clo- is a very, close, very close phonetically to the word Ganesha, which is the name of the elephant god in India. I was about it to ask you about that, yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that the two mother goddesses of the Shakti cult are considered to be the mothers of Ganesha. As a matter of fact, in artwork, in later times, anytime they were depicted um, in statues or in artwork, they were invariably pictured with Ganesha. So Ganesha was a, a piece of the puzzle. And Ganesha ends up being able to. There's symbolism that associates with Ganesha that ties positively to the Dogen and to to other cultures. It ties down to a group I'm studying down in New Zealand called the Maori. Um, yeah. This is a book I'm working on.
2: And, and there's that again that concept there of the uh, the two universes. I believe that the, the embracing Ganesha's um, right. That's one. Yeah,
5: that. that's one of the the questions that I I had was if. Um, On on the Gobekli Tepe pillars, one of the enigmatic symbols that people are trying to explain, what does this thing represent, is um, there are carved arms that come down the sides of the flat pillar and hands with fingers that bend around and grasp the end of the pillar. Well, Egyptian language eventually helped me to understand that what that was depicting was the concept of an embrace. The idea in these archaic traditions is that the formation of matter happens. It begins with what's considered to be an embrace between the non-material and the material universes. And so I thought if this concept of an embrace is so important and Ganesha is so important, what are the chances we're going to find figures or images of embracing Ganeshas? Because I know there were, that in some cultures it was understood that there was a female Ganesha as well as a male Ganesha. So I chased that for a while, realized that the image did exist in China, but was banned by an emperor around 1100 A.D. and really has has disappeared. You can't find it anywhere in China, representations of it. But you get as far as Japan, and it survived. Um, It was so considered to be so secretive that it could only be housed in portable shrines so that it could be moved on a moment's notice if it had to be. And In my Japan, wife, is, it, is,
2: it, is, it a, is it an image of two elephants in Japan?
5: Yeah, it's two elephants who are, are embracing. And one of them has the Egyptian sun glyph on his forehead that is a symbol of the material universe. <laughs> um, there are there's symbolism that that plays out here where so they can identify one as being the non-material universe and one being the material in an embrace with each other. Um, there's another enigmatic symbol on the Göbekli Tepe pillars. It's a it looks like the letter H and it appears a couple of times on the pillars. Nobody is sure quite sure what that represents. Well, it turns out I had to go to a, a like a 1918 or 1919. um New Age, it's called the, the New Age magazine. It was a, um, a, basically a Templar or a Masonic magazine. That desc- There's an article that describes this age symbol, and it, in the um, symbolism of the, the Masons, it represents a non-material energy that comes to be interfaced with the material energy, and it's considered to be masculine and fem- feminine in the same way that these ancient traditions do. So. Laird,
2: I just want you to know that you're blowing our minds at the moment.
5: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Luke's I, looked some of this. He's look He's looked at. The, he's looking at <laughs> a
2: picture of the uh, of the arms embracing, and then uh, and then yeah. right below it is the is it's, the
1: H it's an H yeah. that looks as if it's like if if it came directly off some kind of corporate billboard somewhere. It's like a fancy <laughs> stylized H. Yeah. Uh,
5: yes, it is. Now, there's another set of symbols on the Göbekli Tepe pillars. They look like little three little handbags. Um, sitting next to each other. It's uh, like a, a hemisphere sitting on top of a square. It looks like a circular or a semicircle handle on top of a square handbag. Well, that happens to be the shape of a very early portable shrine in Egypt called a sa, and it was the pattern after which, um, conceptually, every other style of Egyptian temple was, was based. Um, that hemisphere shape, okay, if you think of the concept of um, in the Hermetic tradition, there's a concept uh, called "as above, so below." It's it implies that the processes in the mac of creation in the macrocosm of the universe are in some way fundamentally similar to the ones in the microcosm. Mm-hmm. Another way of expressing that is squaring a circle. Well, this hemisphere shape sitting on top of a square is an early attempt to square the circle—a way a way of representing the concept of squaring a circle. A circle symbolizes the processes of the non-material, or the, actually of the macrocosmic universe, depending on what perspective you look at it from, it represents the non-material. The square represents the material, which is a defined space. So, well, these handbags on the on the pillars, um, three of them together, there's an Egyptian word that uses a very similar symbol that means temple. And so they, well, they put up basically a proto- hieroglyph word here on the side of the pillar that says house or temple
2: thousands of years before egyptian culture starts right uh, what are some of the other animals that are are on these uh on these pillars
5: and well, those, those were one of the clues for me also because animals play a role in the cosmology There's, they symbolize things but i could see there were some animals on the gobekli Tepe pillars that i wasn't I didn't consider – I don't associate them with the cosmology. Why were they here if, they're, if this is cosmological? And so I did some checking. I went to the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary to see what the names of those animals were. And I discovered that not only those animals but all the other ones that are pictured on the pillars, the names are homonyms for cosmological terms. In okay. other words, when you speak the name of the animal, it's like um, you're, you're speaking – At the same time, you're speaking a cosmological term that has meaning. It represents a stage of creation. Um, I was able to learn from that that the animals on the zodiac represent a progression, like the Chinese zodiac represent progressive stages of matter. And all you have to do is follow the names of the animals to see what those stages are. What was the significance of the vulture? The vulture has, okay, to begin with, um, at the time of Gobekli Tepe... Whoever was creating this artwork, I mean, the, the carved images are beautiful images. This is not somebody practicing how to carve things. This is somebody who knows how how to beautifully carve things. But the representations of certain things are um, amateurish. For example, if you were going to present the image of an embrace, you wouldn't do it with the image of the arms that's, that are on these pillars. That's a very – it's like – like whoever put those arms there didn't understand how to convey the concept of an embrace to a person. Um, so in a lot of cases, that's what, that's what happens here is that, um, the symbolic elements that are playing out on these pillars are, are just very, very primitive, um, forms of what they eventually should have been. I'm trying to get back to what your specific question was again. Um,
2: The, about the, about the, the oh, about the vulture,
5: oh, about the vulture itself. Yeah. Okay, the the vulture itself is um, okay. I talked about the creator god representing the concept of grasping or holding firm. That notion of grasping or holding firm is another way of expressing an embrace. Now, a vulture. One of the things that characterizes a vulture is the talons, the grasp. Right. And so this is like the the. Um, seven-year-olds um, attempt to convey the idea of of an embrace. You know, you, you or I would want to convey it in, in terms of a hug because what what we are representing here is the quintessential symbol of the feminine, non-material universe embracing the material universe in relation to mother goddesses. The symbol is a hug. This is the single most non-threatening symbol a person could come up with. Uh, you may have seen at uh, the original day the earth stood still where where uh, <laughs> you know clatoo comes down the spaceship carrying <laughs> what's what's mistaken for a weapon that symbol was a very poor choice because he was holding something that someone could mistake for a weapon yeah a hug a hug you can't mistake for anything this is a universal symbol of we're here to help you where this is motherly love this is not a threat yeah so the vulture is sort of a, a backhanded way or a, not a very practiced way of conveying that idea of grasping or holding firm or hugging. Okay.
2: Just another way of, just another way of saying the same thing. Right. Uh, and
5: there's nothing in this tradition that doesn't get try, to, try to get expressed you know, dozens of different ways. If I can't get you to understand it this way, I'll try it this other way. It's right. like, and like playing a game of charades. You know, In charades, you have a time limit. Uh, but you try as many different ways as you can to get them to finally grasp the concept you're, you're you're trying to convey.
2: And, again, the the different levels of meaning.
5: Right. Different levels of meaning of it. Right.
2: I want to ask about, uh, and this is something you mentioned several times in the book. Uh, what's the significance of the Star Sirius, uh, Orion's Belt, uh, and something I never heard of before called Bernard's Loop? Uh, which is, I, I believe, around the in uh, the constellation of Orion. But yes. What's the significance yep. of, of these these celestial bodies to this cosmology?
5: At at the the easiest level of understanding here, when we talk about the non-material universe, um, one of the things that relates is a Buddhist concept of ascension. Ascension, you might understand as you know, personal ascension is you're trying to come to a enlightenment. Um, by looking inward to yourself. But ascension also has meaning in the macrocosm, like all these other symbols. And In the macrocosm, the concept of ascension relates to um, the notion that a gateway exists between the material and the non-material universes. And the suggestion is that that gateway exists at Sirius. There's this dwarf star that got created that also, I believe, was responsible for the creation of Barnard's Loop, which is this spiraling birthplace of stars that circles around the belt stars of Orion. Okay. Now, if you follow the clues that Buddhism gives, it leads you to Sirius as being where this gateway is located. And so Sirius becomes a symbol for, the, on this level of interpretation for the non-material universe, and the sun becomes a symbol for the material universe. And so in Egypt, every year at the heliacal rising of Sirius, that's the point in the annual cycle where Sirius meets the Sun. That's a very significant thing because it's the non-material and the material universe is coming together. It's the starting point. Hmm. That's that's why the year in Egypt began with that.
1: I just found um, here. I'm I'm looking at the uh, Dogon people on Wikipedia, and I just found that that's the tribe that uh, isolates menstru- menstruating women.
2: Well, there's a in, lot to
1: do that. Yeah, there are uh, a lot, lot
5: to do that. Actually, yeah. what happens is there's a concept that the Maori in New Zealand called tapu, but you know better as through the word taboo. Now, yeah. it it even happens in Judaism. In Judaism, in an Orthodox temple, they won't let the women sit with the men. They're separated, um, and a woman who's menstruating is not supposed to go into a sanctuary in a traditional Jewish. Setting. So there are many different traditions where this is true. The idea is that you you can understand that if creation is conceptually tied to the notion of um, biological reproduction, that you're messing up the cycle if you introduce the beginning of the cycle into the middle of things that have already been created. Ah, gotcha. <laughs>
1: That's pretty enlightening, huh? (laughs)
5: Yeah. In in Maori culture, they they have long explanations of of what constitutes tapu and what constitutes not tapu, but you can see echoes of it in these other traditions, especially in in Judaism. That you bring up Judaism is interesting
2: because is there some of these same similar concepts in, in Kabbalah?
5: Yes, absolutely. In Kabbalah, even right down to the the concept of a non-material and a material universe. Uh, one of the ways it's expressed is the idea that when our universe formed, the material one formed, it formed improperly, that that the material universe is considered to be the aberrant form. Non-material is considered to be the correct form. And the Dogen sort of describe the difference, they sort of conceptualize the difference, and the way it plays out is, the same way, uh, if you're familiar with the two kinds of sushi that exist, there's one kind of sushi where the seaweed wraps around the outside of the spiral, and there's another kind where it wraps around the inside of the spiral. Okay. One, you have rice outside, the other, you have seaweed outside. That's the structural difference between a non-material and a material universe. And one change in stage of process of creation results in material as opposed to non-material. So in Kabbalism, they have this idea that that's all wrapped up with the stories about Adam and Eve, that um, the way it's expressed in Kabbalism, this, this flaw that happened when our material universe formed was that Adam and Eve, um, they uh, consummated their relationship at the wrong time. They consummated it too soon. In dogon culture, it's expressed by the idea of one of these eight ancestors who Um, The opposite of ascending, they descended, and one of them descended out of sequence. And that's what caused us to have a material universe instead of a non-material one. Wow. Hmm.
2: (laughs) Interesting interesting concepts there. Uh, In Judaism,
5: also in Judaism, in the uh, Kabbalistic system, the remedy to that, the remedy to the mistake that happened when the universe formed, and they're looking at this from a mindset that when it formed, events transpired much, much more quickly than they do now. Just like I'm saying that in the non-massive realm, time frame runs much, much quicker. The solution to this error was that for the next approximately six thousand years, Jews needed to observe the high holy days, which are symbolic of these stages of creation, and that right. after after approximately six thousand years, everything that was non-material would become material. The two would basically reverse it themselves. We're now sitting at, at fifty-seven seventy-six. I think is the Hebrew year. That's approximately six thousand years.
2: So, are we saying here that in two hundred years, the the two universes combined? That,
5: from a Kabbalistic them, standpoint, yeah. some sometime in this time, the time frame that we're in, there's going to be a reversal that happens. Um, in the Vedic tradition, that's also true. You have a non-material and a material universe that are understood that after a period of time, they're going to reverse. And everything that, that had been material is going to become non-material. And everything that was non-material was going to be become material.
2: Whoa. That is... That is what...
4: Sweet. <laughs>
2: I think Luke's ready for that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk to you, Laird, about... Yeah, you know, kind of the nature of whoever the beings were that civilized mankind, who set up these places like Gobekli Tepe. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned Prometheus and kind of like at the beginning of this interview, because I was going to hit on that kind of like, you know, it, it, is there a connection to those kind of concepts like Prometheus and also, you know, in the book of Enoch's, uh, the Watchers? Is there right. a connection to there?
5: Um, there is. Um, the, Okay, you, if you've looked at pictures of the Dogon tribe, you've probably seen pictures of carved wooden Dogon masks. Yeah. Um, that's one of the artifacts that they create, one of the artworks that they create. Well, the, the symbolism that goes with those masks relates to these two universes because even in the archaic philosophies in India that underlie this, the understanding is the non-material side can see us, but we can't see them. And that's what the mask symbolizes, the idea that the person behind the mask can see you, but the person looking back from the mask can't. Now, that's the notion of a watcher from one perspective. Um, In this structure of matter, the the egg of the world that relates to the calabi yau space and string theory that gets created in stages, the idea is that each of these stages of creation, which is sort of like a bubble, um, is associated with a gatekeeper, which is what Ganesha represents, um, a watcher, which is the idea of the non-material side being wrapped up in this, in the embrace of that, and uh, being able to see, and a herald, uh, notion of a herald. A herald in the ancient times was a person who would go from village to village, village, repeating the same message again and again. So it's a concept of repetition, and so that these are sort of scientific concepts that, that tie into the formation of these these bubbles. Um, this little egg of the world. Uh, I compare it to if you 've ever blown soap bubbles with a wand uh, when you start out when you begin to blow the bubbles, the first few bubbles you blow end up popping right away they don't hold their shape. You have to have to dip it a couple of times and blow it a couple of times so you get one that actually creates a bubble right. well that's that's what happens with matter also is that as after a wave is perceived and and the 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 non-material essence that that is sort of drawn up as a result of that perception begins to twist and pivot. Um, It creates these little bubbles that are comparable to Barnard. Barnard's loop is called a stellar bubble, and it has all the same attributes as this little egg of the world. And the first few of these bubbles are too insubstantial to hold their own weight, and so they collapse on themselves. And finally, when you get to the seventh one, you have one that's strong enough to hold its bubble shape for a while and then eventually it also bursts. But um,
2: is, that sim- is that symbolic of the material universe?
5: Yeah, it could, be, it could very well be, because the universes also take that same form, same basic form. Ours is the fourth of seven universes, material universes, paired with seven non-material universes for a total of 14. And... Those 14 are supposedly configured in the shape of a helix. And so when you get down to the bottom of it, it looks as if, from the very outset, the universe is configured like DNA.
2: As above, so below.
5: Yeah, and if it is configured like DNA, then the possibility exists that the principles of life are inherent in the universe, and we're likely to find it pretty much anywhere we go, like you're likely to find a weed anywhere a weed can grow.
1: I'm sitting here looking at pictures of Dogan masks and if I were a traveler, a pioneer for the first time, like seeing these people wearing these masks, I would trip ball.
2: <laughs>
5: yes, yes, Some of them are, are pretty uh, pretty frightening. They're really interesting artistically though, some of them. <laughs>
2: what what is kind of the connections though like going back to prometheus uh and the, you know the giving fire to mankind and, and also this this concept of the watchers uh like in the book of enoch uh, to to these beings uh is well, is there the, something the, that's the, preserved there in the in the, yeah,
5: in that the, Dogen, the Dogen story of the that ties to prometheus is in the science of the Dogen. it's talked about in there um it's the idea of there was in one of their myths Um, one of their ancestor teachers, or these guys, these tribe mates who came back to teach them what they had learned, one of them steals fire from the gods, supposedly, and um, sort of runs around their ritual shrine. Their ritual shrine is is shaped a a lot like a, a pyramid with four flat sides, but it has a staircase up the center of each of the four flat sides to a flat top. Now in the myth, this an ancestor steals the fire and then starts running around the shrine looking for a staircase to go up. And the The myth doesn't really make any sense because um, he should have been able to find a staircase immediately because there are staircases on each side of it. He finally finds the staircase and goes up to the top and takes the fire to the top of the of the shrine. Um, scientifically, that's relating to processes that go on um, that that. Connects to processes that happen as electrons are shared between atoms to form molecules. Okay. Um, the the way these things survived in ancient Greece is about three thousand years, and it's three thousand years after um, the the point where the Dogon were probably instructed. So, that's far longer after the Dogon than we are after the Greeks.
2: Right. Right. Because so there's, there's a lot, like, lot of
5: room there for things to to morph, you know, for te- yeah. the game of telephone to be played.
2: It, this. What do you think the nature of these beings were? I mean, were? Were they, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, were they interdimensional in origin? And 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 also, what happened to them? Where did they go? What's, is there a mythos that 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 encapsulates that and says that what happened to these, these yes, beings? Yes, and
5: actually, actually the book I'm working on right now um, – um, ties into what happened with them. I ha- actually have um, explanations given from a locale they left and a locale that it looks like they arrived at that are sort of mirror image myths of each other. The references and the words and everything tied together, and it looks like I, you might, might be able to trace um, what, what really happened to the teachers themselves. Um, okay, if you think of matter as matter creates, what you're beginning with, its this is the process of unity becoming multiplicity. That's the way Buddhism describes it. The The shape of a Buddhist stupa, the base plan of a Buddhist stupa, recreates the geometry by which unity becomes multiplicity. Um, now, if you think that consciousness may work the same way, that the indication is that... There's a grand pool of consciousness that, when a person is born, gets subdivided the same way that matter gets subdivided from a grand pool of mass, or of pre-mass. Okay. Okay. If you look at things that way, then these non-material teachers represent uh, an effort on the that non that non-material side of that grand consciousness. To somehow interface with us. And right. if you believe what the Dogen and the Buddhists say, they succeeded in being able to do that. They succeeded in being able to create a form that was material enough to do it. There are similar descriptions in the, um, when they talk about Moses on the mountain. Uh, God appears on the mountain. And there's a, an episode where, um, the Israelites are warned to stand very far back from the mountain because of the bad effects that are going to happen to them if they come too close to where God is on that mountain. It's a very similar kind of interface between non-material and material. Um, I personally think that, um, although there, there are prosaic explanations for how they happen, that crop circles may represent a subtle effect of that same kind of an interface, that a crop circle is the sort of thing that is subtle enough to be affected by from the non-material side to the material side. Um, in the case of the the Dogen and their teachers, there were there. It's possible that there was more than one um, one segment to this group that was involved in teaching them. Um, I do know that everything that I've studied about the Dogen instruction. Is consistent with the idea of somebody who absolutely had our best interests at heart and did their level best to try to give us what we needed. And they didn't pull any punches. They told us the straight truth about science, and um, it was a very non-judgmental system. Uh, for example, by the time of Christianity, when you get down to things, you have sort of a an opposition between good and evil. In these archaic traditions, the, op- the same opposition is between truth and error. It's very non-judgmental.
2: Gotcha. Um, okay.
5: In the archaic tradition, there is no other than um, sort of a, a division of labor based on sex that it would allow a woman to raise a baby and would allow the men to doing the things that a, you might not want a woman doing if she was raising kids.
4: <laughs>
5: there's very equal distribution of of responsibility, and um, the women were capable of studying with women teachers to learn the innermost things about the the tradition. The men were capable of studying with men teachers to learn it. In the archaic tradition, it was a matriarchal tradition. The women were in charge. And it wasn't until around 3000 BC that you suddenly see reversals everywhere, and what had been matriarchal originally becomes patriarchal everywhere.
2: Which I think is something that's reflected, I think, in the Sakti cult as well, because it's very goddess-oriented.
5: Very goddess oriented, but later on, when you get down into the later um, traditions of India, you have um, Shiva, who's a male god, um, more taking more of a dominant role than, than Sati, who's his consort. But but in the in um, in the archaic version of all that, it's it's the mother goddesses who are important. Uh, there's a, a myth about Osiris in Egypt where his he's tricked um, by other gods, and he's killed and dismembered, and his body parts spread around Egypt. Well, that myth exists in this archaic tradition also, but it plays out in relation to a mother goddess, not a god. All the things that you associate with gods at 3000 BC in Egypt, or thereafter, um, play out in relation to goddesses prior to 3000 BC.
2: So there's a definite shift from a paternalistic to a paternalistic society.
5: Yes, but that's just part of a a broader shift of symbolism that sort of tightens up the system of of cosmology. I was telling you that some of the symbols, the way they played out at Gobekli Tepe, were not very practiced. Whoever put them together, you can see what they were going for, but they didn't know how to get to it. Uh, By the time you get to 3000 BC, little tweaks are made, and so that... In situations where you have a small animal like a mouse representing a macrocosmic structure like Barnard's Loop, the symbolism flips, and now it's suddenly an elephant, which is a very large animal representing a very large structure. And so there's sort of a sense brought to the symbols around four, between 4000 and 3000 BC.
2: I wonder what happened then.
5: Um, that's part of the book that that's yeah. at the publisher right now. Um, There's another instructional sanctuary, a a, a 3,000 or 3,200 B.C. era instructional sanctuary in another part of the world where it looks as if agriculture was successfully taught and um, priests and potential rulers were trained, um, connected with Successful king kingships that look like they were established around thirty one hundred BC in Egypt, in China, in um, the British Isles, and down in South America.
2: Do you have anything you wanted to ask, Luke? Oh, uh, your head is spinning over there. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, did, I did a while ago,
1: but I've already forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> if you change directions too much on me, like maybe like just two or three times, then I'm lost. <laughs>
5: Yeah, w- welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> well, Laird, uh, the
2: time that we have uh, going on here, the rest of the time, what um, what are you working on now, and, and also you know where can people get these books and uh, and see your materials that you've uh, accumulated?
5: The books are available pretty much anywhere. Um, the new book, Point of Origin, um, is in all the Barnes and Noble stores. You can you can buy it through any of the usual outlets. You can get it through my my publisher's site um, www.innertraditions.com. You can get it through Simon and You can get it through Amazon or through any of those usual outlets. You can order it through any bookstore, or as I said, you can probably find it at Barnes and Noble, Noble, um, any place in the country and in the U.S. Um, the, it's the um, sixth in a series. But okay. you don't necessarily have to have read the other five to to get meaning out of the six. I think it's the it helps if you really want a full understanding of what this is. It helps to read them in order, but you don't have to read them in order. Um, they're all available pretty much everywhere. There's one book of the series is on a slightly different subject. It strays from ancient cosmology, and it talks about a man named Emmanuel Velikovsky, who was a, a friend of Einstein's, who... Um, wrote a very famous controversial book back in the 1950 called Worlds in Collision. It's a, a theory about uh, controversial theory about how Venus formed.
2: Yeah, that's the whole like concept that Venus was a comet and that it it passed by Earth and which right. I think was he explained that for the events of the Exodus.
5: Right. That the idea behind that book is to take 60 worth, years worth of science that have happened since he wrote that book, his book and based on references he didn't have access to evaluate his theory in terms of all that new science.
2: What, what do you see uh, like uh, you're you're continuing on with this with this series um where are you going kind of like next with it?
5: Um the book Beyond Point of Origin. I'm calling the Overthrown Boat. I'm not sure what the the publisher will end up calling it. I've asked gotcha. them to use that use that name because the name has meaning in terms of a lot of the references in the book. Um, that deals with Northern Scotland. Uh, there's a, a little Neolithic village there called Scarabray that nobody knows where it came from or who the people were who lived there or what they were doing there or uh, there's a lot of mysteries surrounding that. So that that book. Um, Is the next piece of this, and it actually ties into the other books, surprisingly. And then beyond that, I'm working on a book about New Zealand, the Maori in New Zealand, which also ties in to these same groups. I was surprised that the Maori information I've had uh, waiting to be written about for years, uh, I knew about them right after writing the first book and kept putting the book off and off and off. Now I realize that the references down in New Zealand tie back to all of the other traditions I've studied from Gobekli Tepe forward, um, you can see the influences on Polynesian cosmology.
2: Very interesting. Very, very fascinating stuff, Laird. You, you really have, uh, I think you really have blown our minds tonight, yeah. seriously. You know, I, I,
1: think, <laughs> I think you may have given me the initiative to read a book. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you are also part of the paradigm symposium and uh we're gonna believe we're gonna try to get out there this year and uh great
5: that's great that that weekend is always a really interesting weekend a fun weekend even though it's sort of a controlled stumble right
2: (laughs) what are you going to be speaking about there
5: um actually i'll be talking about point of origin there uh, this year going going into detail about um how that book ties things together
2: well, excellent. Well, Laird, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna call it, but, uh, stay on the line for us, and, uh, okay. we'll be right back on Conspiranormal.
1: What's popping, G? <laughs>
2: Apparently a lot of things, like, uh, parallel universes, material and immaterial universes, all, ki- all, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I-, I can tell you that we've had some good guests on the show. Not to diminish any other guests that we've had, but this is one of the guests that has just completely blown Not my mind. Not to tarnish their repertoire. <laughs> Not to tarnish their reputation.
1: <laughs> but, but yeah, dude, that's what I was thinking too. I mean, like, he really makes me want to read his books.
2: Like, yeah. really. Yeah. And, and you know, I read the, I read the, I've read this book, you know, cause I, I read all the books of the guests. And, uh. You read all the time. I <laughs> <heard>. <laughs> I read man <laughs> i had um I, I, I at the beginning of the book i kind of just had a hard time with it cuz i didn't really understand a lot of the uh references i didn't understand a lot of the like when he goes through the word stuff and and, and it's good because it's very exhausting yeah. the way he does it you know it's very exhaustive is rather the right word <laughs> in that he takes it's it's like it's like beyond reproach cuz he wants to show his Um, thought process through the whole thing and but at the end of the book he really he really does he really does tie it together uh i i find it interesting this concept of uh, gobekli tepe and where it was and where it is rather and just the whole idea of the what we talk about with like, like dr heiser with like the book of enoch and and the watchers of the book of enoch and the prometheus giving fire to mankind i mean it's all it's like it's like all these things just kind of come together yeah they they all
1: relate somehow and in some way
2: well i want to get kind of your impressions of it luke what you uh um
1: what was i gonna say
2: (laughs) no more Uh, dead air (laughs) Rob, over to (laughs) you. well... uh, (laughs) It was actually...
3: I was kind of waiting the whole time thinking that he would tie a couple points together that I was a little... He was talking about the Dogons and how they they firmly, like, not necessarily insist, but the the way their language is structured or whatever, that all this knowledge was given to them by, like, a physical being or whatever. Yeah. But then he spent the rest of the time talking about the... um, The physical world and the spiritual world, and the spiritual world that you know doesn't have a world of its own necessarily, but can interact with our world and can influence our world and teach us things. But he didn't really like that. That was that was Dogon thought that he was talking about, right? But those two things, they never connected for me. I didn't, or maybe I missed it. Yeah, Yeah. I I was about to
1: ask him what the relationship was between uh, what he was talking about in the Dogon people, because he kind of he kind of skipped to uh, the side of Turkey. Gobekli Tepe you know right after talking about the uh, the Dogans and so so like I was like how how are those people related to that but then later I understood
2: right that at a certain time uh there was a there was a group there that I guess was was trained at this site in Göbekli Tepe, and there the these cultures all come from that yeah. root. The the Vedics. some of them went north, some of them went south, some of them went west, east. And they sc- scattered yeah. all across the globe, right? Which you know is like a parallel to what's in the what's in the Bible, right? Because you have after the flood, Noah comes in in the ark, Erat, which is in Turkey, by the way, which mm-hmm. is fairly close to where Göbekli Tepe is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the tower of babel story where you, and he talked about this like the further you go back the more language is is common and that people then dispersed in the bible it shows you people disperse throughout the globe so it's like these two stories match together from what they're from from what they're talking about
1: well well let me ask you something how how close is gobekli tepe that site to the what um, geologists believe are like the original like birthplace of humanity
2: well uh, pretty in, in, close really i mean as far as are you talking about the birthplace of civilization or yeah, birthplace c- civilization. Of
1: civilization yeah
2: very close because it, 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 the whole area of okay from egypt um through um what is now israel syria turkey and then it kind of swings over into iraq and was now iraq and was now iran you know it makes this like kind of like the swing like an arc and that's why it's called the fertile the fertile crescent okay that whole area is considered the beginning of what what we term a civilization those are where the first cities came from in egypt uh first cities in mesopotamia like the sumerians all that that whole area uh was where writing began uh, mathematics, all these kind, all these kind of, and, and you know, written history in and of itself comes from. Hmm. Written history comes from about uh, starts about three thousand years ago, okay. or, or no, rather, hold on, five thousand years ago, three thousand BC, and he's they're dating Göbekli Tepe to around about ten thousand five hundred BC, which is also interesting because some of the works like done by guys like uh, Graham Hancock, Robert Breval, uh, you know, the guy that uh, was his last name? Shock that looked at the uh, the Sphinx and saw the weathering patterns on the Sphinx that looked like the Sphinx had one time been in an area where there was heavy rain. Mm-hmm. Right. Or rather at the time period, it must have been built 9,000 like, 10,000 years ago, a, right? Because like at the time yeah, because at the mm-hmm. time there was the the climate in Egypt was much more uh, subject to rain yeah, yeah. than it is it was now. Tropical, believed yeah. to be
1: tropical yeah. because of the uh, polar shift.
2: And it's kind of like the, the date also corresponds to this date of ten thousand five hundred BC, huh. where Göbekli Tepe is too. And yeah,
1: I, I was just reading that it predates the invention of the wheel, and I was like, "Who? <laughs> the wheel yeah. has to have been around since the the very first civilization before the ice age and everything." Like. <laughs> That's, that's such an easy thing to figure out. It doesn't matter how dumb you are. <laughs> I mean, well,
2: I mean, there's there's cultures that did not have the didn't have the wheel. There, no <laughs> <laughs> there's no way. There's no way.
1: I mean, like, you, dude, you see a tree fall down and roll down a hill, and you're like, oh, we can roll things on well, that. Well, that's
2: because it's, a, it's such an easy concept, but there's other cultures that have other concepts other than, other than the wheel. They levitate shit places. I, no, I, 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 I didn't mean to say beep. I that don't worry about that. We don't have to worry about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> Any other insight on Gus?
1: When I was reading the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, deception man I had to like Have my phone Handied ready Next to me Like looking up Oh
2: the Dead Sea Scrolls Deception Yeah, okay.
1: yeah. It might be crap But you know <laughs> It's something It's something on my Bedside table To pick up When I'm sleepy you know, or, or getting yeah. sleepy You know what I mean And
2: it, it's interesting too Like the, this This association With Kabbalah And All these ideas That eventually Come down into You know Hermeticism As above So below uh, those ideas that are now in, like, Freemasonry, uh, you know, various hermetic and occultic secret societies that are around now, and how these, some of these, they, they trace it back to ancient Egypt. Yeah. So these concepts were were there. And, it, and if you look at, you know, we talked about this with, uh, I talked about this with Gons and Basil, the Canary Cry guys, you know, we talked about the whole concept of you know, the antediluvian world before the flood, whenever you think that may have been, uh, was this concept of what I would say, the lack of a better term, is Atlantis, this world that existed before the Ice Age or an advanced civilization. Right. Now, is it what I think that he is saying is that possibility that whatever happened, this cataclysm and that uh, took away whatever knowledge was there before. Now, whether you say that's the Great Flood, the end of the, end of the Ice Age, whatever you say, all those things may be true. Uh, just, again, different levels of meaning, like you said. Um, that <coughs> either that there were people that were survivors of that civilization that decided we need to start putting concepts that, re, that will eventually restart civilization at a certain point, Or there was some kind of interference by some kind of spiritual entity. And if you look at the book of Enoch, that's what you see, right? You see the watchers in the book of Enoch. You see the, uh, in Genesis 6, 6, it's talking about the fallen angels, um, seeing the daughters of men, which the book of Enoch is just kind of like a more exposition of, of, of Genesis 6. But it's fascinating. And yeah. this whole idea of the, you know, he talked about the 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 eight, um, that would guide each of these these cultures, and they have this concept of these eight guiders, basically,
1: like the eight wise sages. Yeah. isn't it supposed to
2: be seven? Yeah, he well, he said eight. So I don't know.
1: The eighth one is secret. Yeah, he <laughs> that's, might that's a that's a, go- that's a, that's a, that's a go- Wait, wait a second. Was it a gorg? A go- a go- 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 Gorgon? Gorgon? <laughs> Gogan? <laughs> Go yeah.
2: It's a Gogan secret. L- Luke's losing it, everybody. <laughs> it's an inner circle. You oh it? I I know I liked your I liked your question about psychedelics. Yeah. About uh, about hallucinogenic drugs. I mean that 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 was perfect. Thank you. Because that's the where I kind of lean towards of maybe that some of the the these we, well, we know these ancient cultures have these experiences. Yeah. We know they have witch doctors, doctors the, that they talk to spiritual entities. They're
1: taking stuff, dude, and it's just like throwing them on the same level as a culture that's around the world, you know, like yeah. thousands of miles away. Yeah. They're, they're both smoking the same stuff, and they're like, they're like, yeah, I figured it all out now. <laughs> <laughs> and this Sakti
2: this cult thing was interesting, too. I never, I'd never even heard of that, but apparently that's something that dates back even before, you know, pre Hinduism, which is one of the oldest religions on earth. Yeah. Is that the death cult? Yeah, it's something with a mother goddess kinda of, kinda of cult. Oh, okay. But originally I think he, he didn't I don't think he mentioned this, but he but Laird dated he he said you can find the Sakti cult uh close into like Iran in that area. And that's where it originates. And that's not too far from that Gobekli Tepe side as well.
1: I gotcha. Uh what was Doctor Future talking about that time? Uh, from the Bible, uh, where there was some kind of like um, he like like a pit where where people were throwing like dead bodies and stuff into it. Some it's it was some kind of ancient civilization like around Sumeria, Mesopotamia, or something like that. And they had some they had like this huge hole, and they were like ritualistically throwing people uh, down. Okay, into this, Are like, you talking about Moloch? I guess the yeah. god Moloch, what, and they would sacrifice
2: they would sacrifice uh, mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. to Moloch. There was something that was practiced by the ancient Phoenicians, which were uh, a culture that existed just kind of like what is now Lebanon. Okay. In the Middle East. Yeah. And they were also, they were they were huge like traders and uh, and uh, sailors. And some people even think that they may have even, some of them may have even gotten as far as the New World. That's how good they were. And they may have even even circumnavigated Africa thousands of years before. The European the Portuguese did. yeah um, you know, one of the one of the cities that they founded was was ancient Carthage which was the the enemy of Rome for a good long time if you remember your history class those. no uh, dude, <laughs> hey, I, I've, I've already those are the ones that you're like
1: I've already told you guys <laughs> before <laughs> like we never, we never even made it past American geography. Yeah, like I, I right. we, we never studied the rest of the world. Right.
2: Well, the Carthaginians were known to do that too. They were known to throw. They would sacrifice children to this god named Moloch. They would throw them, throw them onto the fire. Whoa, it's pretty metal. Yeah. <laughs> 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 wow, that's why it's, there's there's verses in the Bible. I think in Leviticus. Where it talks about you, like this, um, God is commanding you: you will not throw your children into the fire. Uh, That's 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 what that's what that means. Man, I I was planning
1: Uh, on getting some friends together and throwing some kids into some fire tomorrow. (laughs) Some 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 random babies. Oh, here we go! Emails are coming. Population control. Emails
2: and Facebook posts. (laughs) Praise (laughs) Moloch.
1: Man, I'm going to look into this Moloch guy.
2: (laughs) Luke's going to come in here next week as a Moloch worshiper. Yeah. (laughs)
1: I'm beginning to like these uh,
2: Bo- Bo- lucky and high priests. I
1: like I like these doctrines that go, are, are are forming with Moloch.
2: I'm glad Doctor. Fe- I have to tell Doctor. Future that uh, that he's encouraged you to become a Molek. No, sure. I mean just just that one part. Like, me- he quickly
1: just kind of skimmed by it, and I was just like, "What did he just say?" Like, I
2: should get him on the phone. Right
1: now. <laughs> I, I know, I know. The Bible has a bunch of brutal stuff in it, man. But I've never heard about that. I was like, I was
2: like "You're wow. like, whoa, that's that's brutal, so was, dude."
1: I mean, what, was it at least like children with defects, or was it just like live? Like, no,
2: no. It would be, it would be it would be any it would be anybody's children. And, and, and what it would be, I believe that I read something about this not too long ago. It, it, it was talking about how they would throw the throw children onto the fire. It didn't matter if they were if they had birth defects or anything like that. You know, most of the time, these were like prized children, uh, and it was an honor to throw them onto the fire. It's pretty messed up. Yeah, yeah. It's, I just, just I, throw your toddler onto the code.
1: I just really can't see. I mean, even even from all of these uh, historians' perspective and all the research has been, I still just can't see that thought process. I just don't get yeah. it. No,
3: just it <laughs> seems like that one could go unwritten. You know, like.
2: Well, don't you, burn children. There, be, okay, we know. There, there's a lot of things like that. I mean, there was a practice that the British in India, uh, when they when they ruled India, they they banned, and it was called. Uh, I want to say it was called sati. And what they would do was, if a man died, they would throw his wife. They and they cremate him. They throw his wife on the fire. Yeah, you? yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> You're worth nothing without your husband. Yeah, You're, you'll die too. Right. Well, that was the that was. That was the belief. That was the concept. It's crazy. That's what, that's what, and the British, the British uh, uh, came in to stop that. They they stopped. That's one of the things they stopped when they were ruling. Yeah, well, I guess the know, Brits aren't obviously all bad. it's kind of cruel to throw your <laughs> wife on the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little mean. <laughs> and to throw your kids. So we're not we're not advocating Malekian child sacrifice no. on Conspiranormal. I I just wanna reiterate I, that. I, just, I want a t shirt so,
1: that says Molek on it. <laughs> he's, he's got dead. I'm babies. sure there's
2: a I'm sure there's a metal band out there that
1: <laughs> Dude, that's that's a good idea. <laughs>
2: I'm gonna take that down. Huh? You could have, you could have like, you'd have like a stage show where like you throw in, like baby dolls in the fire and stuff. <laughs> you got like some demon in the background, it's like. Aah! Well, okay, interesting that you that you point that. Let me before I go on. Uh, the rituals at Bohemian Grove have been likened to that. What to the Mo, to the Molechian cult. Because uh they burn that that cremate you know, the cremation of care ceremony that they do where they do this mock human sacrifice, they throw this well they they call it care. In other words, we're throwing our cares onto this fire. It's very symbolic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's what they do at Bohemian Grove. You ever watch the Alex Jones or he uh, infiltrated Bohemian look, Grove? Is he yeah. the
1: only one that yeah. this this information's coming from?
2: Well, I mean he filmed it. It's oh. on the movie. Oh yeah. And they take they take this effigy of a child and they throw it onto the fire. Whoa. And this is what the this is what the uh, this is what the Republican high ups do in their little retreat every year at Bohemian Grove. <laughs> See they burn I mean, fake children. Yeah, See, burn I, fake no, no problem with that. I, I know and I then know, express family values. I
1: know when I hang out with rich people. And and they they just go out to remote location and just like fish a little bit and hunt a little bit you know and, well, and drink I mean, some beer. There's a
2: <laughs> level of rich. There's a level of rich people. There's many different levels of rich people, right? Yeah, the one percent are probably the ones that are doing this. Like that movie we watched, the conspiracy where the they're doing that, the Mithras worship. Funny movie. Yeah, we need to watch that sometime. you <laughs> watch that sometime, Rob. I like that. What is that? It's this is a movie called The Conspiracy and it's, it's it's riffing off the whole Bohemian Alex Jones going to Bohemian Grove and the uh they these guys it's it's like a it's like a fake documentary or found footage film uh, yeah, yeah. yeah and they and they Shaky talk and, and they, they go the in, they go into this place where they're supposedly these guys are worshiping Mithras which was the bull god from uh, ancient Persia and uh they're the having Mithras. their they're having their annual bull hunt yeah it's a very interesting movie it's called the conspiracy it's on netflix it's really it's really really good but uh next week we are going to be once again calling internationally uh we're going to be talking to dr john ward he was also one of the higher ups in the interrupted paradigm broadcasting network and we're going to be talking to him about a host of different things um he is an archaeologist that uh, works in Egypt. Uh, apparently, he he and his wife just found a major, like a city, that uh, had never been found, never been excavated, never been found before. So we're gonna definitely talk to him about that. He's on. He's not gonna be in Egypt. He's gonna be in Sweden. So you can ask. Maybe you can. Ask about uh, Swedish black metal.
1: Ask him if he has met a chick named Fjord, or
2: <laughs> or like listens to Burzum or something. <laughs> Burzum.
1: Yeah, he's he's got his own problems going on right now, man. He had like a whole stockpile of illegal assault rifles and stuff, like fully automatics. And...
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this the black metal guys probably throwing throwing kids on the fire, yeah. so
0: Sacrifice to Moloch.
2: The um. But we're going to talk about to, uh, you know, since he lives in the Middle East, I want to get his opinion on what's going on over there. And he has a lot of things to say about what's going on with ISIS. And if you haven't been paying attention to the news, ISIS has been gaining some more ground and basically they, they captured a city called Ramadi uh, in Iraq and they've been pushing in. And like the Iraqi military, just folded. They just left. They didn't even really bother even fight. So the situation just gets worse and worse. And also last week in Syria, which ISIS is in control of parts of Syria and parts of Iraq, they moved into a um, an ancient city called Palmyra, which is. Uh, a lot of it dates back to the Roman, Roman times, but it's like apparently really beautiful place, rich in culture. And the fear is, is that uh, that ISIS is going to do the same thing that oh, they've no, done to dude. a lot of places in Iraq, where they've blown up ancient sites and oh, smashed no. statues, and yeah. So we're definitely going to put a gun in my hands, dude. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's it's a bad situation. Uh, really bad situation, but it's it's uh it's complicated because we've definitely have used ISIS in Syria to go after the fight against the the government of Syria, which yeah. we don't agree with. And there was actually uh, a uh, what's their ultimate <laughs> objective anyway? Like what are to are they establish to... a Islamic state. Oh. Gotcha. They want to they want to reestablish the ancient the the medieval Arab caliphate. So they really in the plan East.
1: on like getting rid of America's occupancy from Iraq, like altogether. Well, we thing? don't.
2: We're not actually. I mean, we don't have troops there. We don't officially. Oh, I mean, there are people. There are people that are there. Uh, Obama's been sending air raids against ISIS. So. Oh. That'd be an interesting thing to talk to Dr. Ward about and get kind of his opinions. But uh, we're going to call it a night if you guys are ready. I think everybody's pretty much brain dead by this point. But uh, <laughs> Always. <laughs> always. <laughs> Everybody, uh, as always, uh, you can go to curdsperibromal.podmatic.com. Uh, we're also on the Fringe Radio Network and, as you know, last but not least, the IPBN radio network. We're actually going to have the shows on at six o'clock central time, uh, 6 PM central time on Thursday nights is when the show will be playing on IPBN. And, uh, Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, don't throw any don't throw your kids on the fire. Yeah,
1: and I, I'm sorry for retarded poljarius.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get an email on that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Luke's in- my daughter today.
1: has Pulgeria uh,
2: and and and, and, and uh, throwing kids on fires and uh, whatever. Else. I didn't mean
1: it. Like, I babies are kind of cute as long as I can just give them right back when I'm done with them. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Alright, well, on that note,
1: <laughs> put them back where they came
2: from. <laughs> Remember, Luke doesn't want to wait in traffic. If he has to wait in traffic, the whole world's going to die. Exactly. <laughs> Alright, guys. Well, we're going to call it tonight, and uh, join us next week on... Conspirable!
4: Howdy ho!